Hello and welcome to the Food Navigator podcast, your deep dive into the trends shaping the European food and beverage space. My name is Ollie Morrison, a Food Navigator journalist, and today I'll be looking at sugar reformulation. As we are all aware, the industry is under massive pressure to reformulate products with less sugar. With the help of some experts, I'll be trying to investigate the best ways manufacturers can go about this. We'll explore ethics too. We all know there's an obesity crisis in Europe, but whose responsibility is this anyway? The governments? The food industries? Should we be focusing on personal responsibility? And where on earth does the COVID era leave us in all of this? Coronavirus uh, will probably assist uh, efforts at sugar reduction. I begin by talking to Professor Jack Winkler. Jack is a former professor of nutrition policy at London Metropolitan University and, I'm sure he won't mind me saying, an eminent and illustrious voice on all matters relating to nutrition policy. We begin by talking about the effects of COVID on supply chains. Jack thinks this will ultimately help reformulation efforts. Now, you would expect uh, then the price to go up if supply shrinks. And this will, uh, and indeed, even quite apart from price, the sheer availability of sugar uh, will lead some manufacturers and some products to think about um, either some form of sugar reduction, of which the two forms are to use some sort of substitute agreement or simply to use less. Um, It it will certainly, I mean, you know, it's, it's an ill wind and all that, Um, but uh, coronavirus uh, will probably assist uh, efforts at sugar reduction. What's the best way that the industry can go about reducing sugar? Well, I think uh, as a result of a a long career of failure, of urging people to eat less sugar, uh, I think I've come to the conclusion two things work. Uh, One is price, and the other is reformulation. Which companies are doing it are doing it right? I mean, the the obvious one is soft drinks, because what you once uh, the soft drinks industry levy really hit, uh, it broke uh, what had up to that time been a universal rule rule globally, not just in the UK, that that. Um, sugared and sugar-free drinks sold at the same price. But when the soft drinks industry levy came in and um, you really did have to, you either had to absorb a big hit or pass it on, for the first time anywhere in the world, we developed a substantial price difference. And the result that we saw, and indeed, positively asserted by the drinks manufacturers was a great rise in sugar-free drinks. I mean, the sales of Coke Zero went up. Pepsi Max was already their main product, but even it went up. Uh, Even Iron Brew now has two sugar-free versions on on the shelf. Um, This is one of the examples that I would always use that price is a major determinant. Once once people 
saw a substantial price differential that they could recognize between a sugar and a sugar-free drink, they were quite happy to drink a sugar-free drink. That's the greatest success story in sugar reduction ever. It's a major source all over the world. Um, but it's down to uh, a, a very constructive design of the soft drinks industry levy. What's your, what's your opinion of, of voluntary targets then? Many people, understandably, because compliance is always incomplete, um, say, uh, you know, the industry will evade voluntary standards. Um, yes, some of them will. Uh, on the other hand, um, um, we do have examples uh, of success stories. In, in Two things about it. We have examples of success stories. The salt reduction program is one that was entirely voluntary and has achieved as big a reduction. It's the most successful uh, nutrition policy since rationing during the Second World War, and that was entirely voluntary. And secondly, there's a fantasy on behalf of many academics, and, and I use that word intentionally, um, who don't know the real world of enforcement and corruption and illegality and illicit supplies and adulteration and all of that, um, which many companies are quite capable of. And, and uh, as a result, they seem to think that if you make a law, somehow it automatically will be followed. That's, that's, that's a, a naive fantasy. The problem of uh, implementation and enforcement are very real problems in the food in the food world, as you will know at least as well as I do. Uh, and it is uh, 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 a hopeful fantasy of of academics and others who sit in health advocacy organizations to say if we pass a law, it's automatically going to be followed. And I don't think that is the case. And hence, I don't will fully recognize that when you have voluntary standards, not everyone follows them. Um, when you have mandatory standards, not everyone follows them too. It's, change is a difficult world in food, as you will learn. Is it therefore not a hopeful fantasy also to expect that consumers will, will buy these products? We bring up the example of Nestle's Milky Bar Wowsom's product, which contained 30% less sugar thanks to the company's innovative technique of effectively hollowing out the sugar crystals. Jack and I agree, this was a great tasting product. However, after introducing it in 2018, the product was pulled at the beginning of this year, owing to, in Nestle's words, underwhelming demand. If you're going to bring in a new product, a sugar-reduced product, um, that is going to be anything other than a niche product. If it's going to be a product, if sugar reduction is to have an impact on public health, it has to be consumed by millions, not just a few uh, aficionados. And there was a wonderful quote from a, 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 the head of, of um, uh, food services for the U.S. Army, who spends a lot of time making sure that the rations for combat troops are 
enough to keep them alive while they fight. And he says, um, he had a wonderful quote, it's not nutritious if they don't eat it. <laughs> those products, reformulated products, have got to sell and, and they've got to be acceptable to millions of people and that takes time. So apart from time and price, what's the key to solving the challenge of making reformulated products of mass appeal? According to Jack, it's by keeping quiet about sugar reduction. It's by gradually cutting the sugar without telling people. If you're going to have an impact on public health, i.e. the kinds of diabetes and heart disease and obesity, you've got to get through to all, all segments of society, whatever their values. And the one thing we know about that is that wagging your finger at them saying, don't eat chocolate, just doesn't work. I, I say to you, and I'm happy to quote on this, nutrition education does not work. Full stop, exclamation point. You don't wag your finger at people and say, don't eat chocolate. You've got to do it in a more clever way. And one of the great advantages of uh, the salt reduction program, right? they mobilized, remember this was entirely voluntary, they mobilized most of the manufacturers, who big manufacturers, who used salt as an ingredient. They, over six years, they had a 15% reduction in salt. And 97% of those products never disclosed anywhere on the label or in advertising that they were reduced salt. And I coined the word, which is for understandable reasons that journalists, you recognize that they would become popular, called the unobtrusive strategy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, it's invisible. It's silent. We just do it, and we don't boast about it. We don't say, this is low salt, or salt reduced, or anything. Because to many people, particularly the people with less concern about nutrition, low salt means less taste. And so they just didn't say it. And so the, the combination of reformulation and being unobtrusive about it was the absolute core of the most successful nutrition policy that's been enacted in the UK since the Second World War. And that's a, a guide to the future. And the soft drinks industry levy is the second most important. And the evidence there was a combination of both price and reformulation. Those are, those are the two ways to go. And how far do you go without sacrificing the taste? By way of explanation, Jack recounts Heinz experiments from cutting not sugar, but salt from its products. What they did was they tested the various varieties of salt reduction, and it varied with the product. I mean, the, the ability to reduce salt in soups was different than the ability to reduce salt in spaghetti, which was different than beans, etc. They had to do it individually by, by, um, by product. And they would, uh, what they did was they identified the level of cut at which people could tell the difference. They'd say, they'd ask them, you know, what do you, which, not just which do you like, but is there any difference between these two products? And at some point, people would say, this one is less salty. And when you do that a few hundred times, 
they recognized the point at which people could tell the difference from the existing popular Heinz version and the salt-reduced one. And then they cut just short of that line. And they let it sit for three years, and then they did it again. And they let it sit for three years, and they did it again. And that is the way to do it unobtrusively. Polly Gabriel is a nutrition campaigner at Action on Sugar, the charity formed in 2014 by a group of specialists concerned about sugar and its impact on health. It lobbies to highlight the harmful effects of a high-sugar diet and the desirability of reducing the amount of added sugar contained in processed foods. Most recently, it has been calling for interventionist measures from the UK government, including bans on the advertising of unhealthy foods, mandatory nutrition labelling and mandatory reformation targets for the food industry in order to tackle the nation's obesity epidemic. Gabriel agrees with Professor Jack that new products should go down the reduction by stealth technique. I ask her first... What's an ideal scenario for action on sugar? Reformulated products? Or no products that are high in sugar at all? I think there's a little bit of a a mix there. I think with regards to the sugar reformulation program specifically, the reason why we've not seen a very big um, success with that program is because of its voluntary program and the percentage uh, target given of 20% um, across all the categories that contribute most sugar to children's diet was quite an arbitrary target. It wasn't specific to um, categories. And the problem with voluntary programs is they provide no real guidance as to um, what needs to be done within specific categories. So, and also was given other, the manufacturers were given other levers as in to shift sales to lower sugar products or to cut portion size and what we saw is a huge amount of um, products to the market with um, advertised and heavily marketed as 30% less sugar than the usual than the usual product um, and a lot of those products have now been discontinued because of, of lack of sales and I think a lot of energy has been put into those kind of products where a true reformulation product program that can be really successful is work that's done incrementally behind the scenes to gradually reduce sugar in core line products that contribute most sugar and calories to people's diets without really anyone knowing about it or needing to know that work is going on. So that can really um, increase consumer acceptance to the new products as well. And rather than just launching a lot more products, which ultimately is um, broadening out how much sugar is being sold or offered up um, rather than actually improving the products that they've got already. Is that what you want to see the, the food industry do with sugar then? Just kind of really slowly uh, cut back on the sugar and, and just not, and not tell us? Are you saying these, 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 these products which try and cut the sugar by 30% just don't work? Yeah, so um, definitely with regards to, to what you were saying there, and that's the success we saw with the salt reduction program. Mm-hmm. And although the salt reduction program has been around a lot longer, but although it was very successful, and even though it was a voluntary program, it was really strictly monitored, and there were specific category targets for um, for all the different foods. And like I should say, salt was gradually reduced um, from products across a whole spectrum of products with individual targets. Um, and it was closely monitored and evaluated, and he saw huge successes. And yes, a very similar um, program could be 
um, could be talked about with regards to sugar to be more successful. If you look at the soft drinks industry levy, which is a reformulation program, kind of slightly separate, um, we see huge successes in that. So the sugar reduction program between 2015 to 2018, we saw just under a 3% reduction across all the categories in sugar. And um, with with this soft drinks industry levy, where it was a mandatory target for manufacturers, you reduce the sugar or you pay the levy, then um, we saw nearly 30% reduction in sugar across soft um, soft drinks in the UK. Um, but interestingly, with with that one, the um, the target to avoid paying the levy was to to get below five grams of sugar per hundred milliliters. And you now see a huge broad spectrum of products just sitting just below that. So it's interesting to see that targets work, as in this is the target you need to achieve, and many, many manufacturers did, but there was no exploration as to whether perhaps they could get that a little bit lower in certain products. It was all about the target given, which means that it's it's so important for those targets to be realistic for the category and also challenging to industry to ensure that they're kind of making the best possible reductions in those products. Give me some products which you which you think are good examples of, of how the industry can can reformulate successfully? I think um, some of the kind of e- easier wins um, straight away is looking at products such as milk-based drinks. Um, we've done we're we're fairly confident that those those drinks are going to be bought under the soft drinks industry levy, which they're not at the moment. But we've seen time 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 again within our our surveys that um, a huge amount of added sugar is added to these products. We're talking about milkshakes, coffees, hot chocolates, um, that kind of drink with excessive amounts of added sugar. And if there was a sugar reduction target, that's that's very much an easy win of just removing sugar um, from those products. We've seen huge successes in other categories, um, such as breakfast cereals, um, yogurts, some of those categories that have got been um sugar reduction has been quite successful and then there's other categories within um within the sugar reduction program that have actually increased um in sugars um with puddings and other things like that so certainly with milk-based drinks um things that biscuits contribute a huge amount to um sugar intake in the uk and children's diet and very little success has been seen we see quite a lot of products within that category as well where they um, manufacturers have chosen some of the other levers to reduce the sugar, so reducing portion size and making smaller versions. But often these smaller versions or lower sugar versions sometimes seem to increase in saturated fat and ultimately calories. They're just smaller, but that doesn't mean to say that we're not still consuming the same amount. And um, so there's certainly um, much more work could be done with drinks and in certain other categories that. Um, need a lot more lot more work why, why do you think though the, the, those products which, which which cut the sugar slowly and incrementally without telling people are are more successful i think um it's down to uh sort of perceived acceptability of those some of those products um and also some of the areas where people feel um that more sugar reduction seems to be more acceptable so we saw huge um decreases in sugar in the breakfast cereal category but a lot of work has been done done with regards to breakfast cereals because there was an acceptance especially among um you know parents of young children that there's um there's no need there's it's sort of really outrageous that these products that are marketed to 
children have huge amounts of sugar in them. So we've seen a lot of um, sugar reduction in breakfast cereals, and we've also seen companies um, adding traffic light labelling to, to products where they didn't have before, and also uh, removing sort of child-friendly imagery and cartoon characters from those products because that's what consumers want, and they were driving, they were really helping to drive that. Whereas other products, um, perhaps people are a little um, more uh, sensitive towards changes to their sort of sort of loyalty, brand loyalty. Whereas if if products were made um, incrementally to reduce the sugar over time, then those um, those that brand loyalty would still remain, and it wouldn't be this this new different product uh, which would be marketed completely differently as having 30 percent less sugar, um, because yeah, because that's a lot more difficult. I put it to her, is it wrong to blame food companies for rising levels of obesity? Should we be talking more about choice and personal responsibility instead of government intervention? I think um, obviously everyone has, has the choice to, um, to have what they want, but not everybody does have the choice. Um, and it's important to consider that not all population groups have the luxury of choosing. And if you think about um, certain areas of the country that are um, more deprived, people have less access to healthy food, less access to um, fresh produce and rely very much on convenient food, of which there are uh, is a lot more available to us. And there's more food and more um, different types of products, convenience foods that are available that ever have been before, and more and more new product development. And it's not some, it's not always about it's not always about choice. And it just means that wherever you live, wherever you are, the main, your your main core foods, convenience, convenience foods, or anything that you're buying, you can trust that it's the the best possible version of that of that product. Um, and it. it and it's ultimately down to the manufacturers to be responsible in the, pro- in the p- products that they're developing. And it's also really important to be clear and transparent on the labelling. We need better labelling um, and better um, uh, better regulation on the use of claims on packs. So these some products are, are sort of misleading everyone into thinking certain things about that product when in fact, um, in fact they're not true. Have you got any examples? So we're, um, we're waiting at the moment um, for a, a food labelling consultation, which we're aware of now with um, the UK of left the EU. We've got an opportunity to change the, the labelling on, um, on food and drink. And one of the areas that's a big problem with regards to sugar is that added sugar or free sugars are not labelled on products. So you have total, total sugars only. And also the, um, the traffic light labelling and the reference intake, so the reference intake guideline amounts that are used to um, to give people a percentage of um, how much that particular food is contributing to, you know, their daily sugar intake. It is based on a total sugar amount, so it's um, so it's confusing, it's misleading. It, it you know it implies that um, a can of cola, for instance, is only um, around. Um, 30% of your of your daily uh, daily RI when in fact it, it's way way over your 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 recommended intake of um, free sugar and we also see things with regards to claims high fiber claims vitamin claims but on products that have excessive amounts of added sugar in them so this whole area needs to be looked at with regards to labeling that's something that we're going to be inputting into quite heavily when that consultation is is launched hopefully, hopefully by the end of this year and what what do you think the effect of, of that labelling will be? 
I think a better consumer understanding of um, how much sugar is in a product. It's very, very difficult to see right now um, by looking at uh, food packaging what's in it and things could be a lot clearer to help people make informed choices when they shop. Um, in your experience, how, how are you finding the, the response from the food industry itself? Do you think they're do you think they um, are keen to, to take up this challenge of, of, of reducing sugar uh, and do you think they, they take on board their uh, responsibility or do you think they resent being told what to do by, by people? I, th I think it's ultimately going to be a little bit mixed. I think the majority of um, retailers want to do the right thing and are responsible and, and have the means, um, means of which to do this. Um, it, we have a with the out of home sector, um, it's a little bit um, a little bit slower with regards to um, this work being done because um, they're not under the same uh, regulations as, as supermarkets are, for instance, with regards to labelling and things like that. But ultimately, um, with any reformulation programme, there needs to be a lot more done to support those businesses that are going to find it a lot more challenging. So in um, in, in Scotland and in Wales, um, you see some support by government. To, um, to support businesses with regards to uh, calorie labelling or sugar reduction programmes to, to help them implement those changes. Um, where we don't, don't see the same sort of support in England, but we, we kind of need to support those businesses that need support because often it's about understanding and we, we find with some of our surveys that we do, we did a, a survey on pancakes and waffles not so long ago in the out-of-home section in cafes and restaurants. And when we spoke to some of those um, that, that came up as being quite high um, in sugar and calories in one portion, they were really shocked themselves. So because they don't routinely do analysis of their products, they don't display information on the menus because they're not required to, in which case they don't know actually how much sugar, how many calories are in the things that they're serving. And once they understood that, then they were a lot more on board um, with starting to make changes to their own product lines. Can you, can you tell me a bit mm. more about um, the effects of sugar on on people's health? I think um, obesity is one of them. Sugar is a big contributor to um, energy intake. Um, it has, it's very easy to overconsume sweetened food and drink. Um, and especially with children, we are far more likely if your child, if a child is overweight or obese when they're young, and we're seeing about one in three children are overweight or obese by the time they leave primary school, um, that they are much more likely to be overweight or obese in, going into adulthood and put them at much more risk of developing related health conditions. So that's heart disease, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, um, some cancers. Also, with sugar specifically, tooth decay remains a huge issue in the UK, with one in four children having um, having tooth decay in, in the UK and the baby teeth being, being admitted to hospital to have extractions. Um, and it's um, and it, it's a huge problem. So it crosses over um, a huge amount of uh, health conditions and and poor diet or um, health conditions caused by a poor diet are one of the leading causes of death in this country. I ask her what effect will COVID have? Will it accelerate a shift towards healthy eating among consumers? What does she want to happen? I think it's um, there are so many unknowns for for us all at the moment, um, and it's it's. It's certainly true that sort of both of those, the both of those points that you've um, that you've said are, are true. That um, you know, there's been a lot of people trying 
to be it's very important to maintain a healthy diet during this time that's going to be increasingly important for us to be healthy um, but also very, put, this has put a huge amount of pressure on the, the food industry and retailers so the whole kind of food system is under a huge completely different type of pressures than they were um, previously but it's important to consider that while um, for some coming out of you know in, in sort of getting through this isolation period anyway they know how and to kind of indulge in comfort foods knowing for a while that at the end of it they can get back into their gyms or you know back into their usual healthy ways um would be absolutely fine and perhaps not something to worry about but we have a huge amount of people that that, that don't, don't have that that normal to return to and, and are already struggling to access healthy foods um, before this happened and are probably more more um, struggling now and it's important to kind of ensure that, that everyone's getting the support they need to be healthy and far beyond this because it's yeah as you say it's really really important um, but also we can see how um, when something is putting all of our lives at risk everyone everyone you know, does the right thing. And I think that's an important message to remember um, when we're talking about um, food and nutrition because it's so important for health outcomes. And as I said before, a diet-related um, disease is, is a leading cause of death. So it's not something to be taken lightly either. So it's really important that um, we try and be healthy and support the food system after this to create, um, to create a healthy, sustainable food system for everyone. For a further insight into what consumers are looking for from products in the current climate, I spoke to Laura Swain, an analyst at London-based Stylus, with an expertise in food, beverage and hospitality. How do consumers want the food industry to tackle sugar and reformulation? Consumers are pretty conflicted, to be honest. I mean, eating less sugar is clearly a high priority for them. Um, I think... In uh, August 2019, Fernand did a study and they found that 50% of US consumers said that they were eating significantly less sugar than they did a year before. Um, but at the same time, I think they they still have the urge to indulge. They don't. They also don't want to. Um, they 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 also don't want to uh, compromise on the flavour, the texture, particularly come a bit when it comes to the products that they perceive as kind of an indulgent treat. They have their favourite products. They don't want to miss out on those flavours and textures that they enjoy. Um, I also think that they are a bit distrustful of um, kind of the, the kinds of sugar substitutes that they conceive as unnatural or unnecessarily complex and unfamiliar. And I think ultimately um, these could, these are kind of sometimes unhealthier than sugar itself. And I think consumers kind of recognise this. Um and I think that they see, they want to see products, they want to see ingredients in their products that are um, natural, things like dates, honey, maple syrup, um, could prove popular, I think. Um, really, it's the products that are going to win with consumers in the end are those that balance um, kind of tasting great with a clear and understandable health and nutritional uh, credentials. Give me some examples of, of brands that you think uh, are doing a good job. Um, I think, um, I mean, one one in particular, this isn't kind of down the, the natural uh, honey and dates kind of route, but I think McVitie's have done a particularly good job at uh, tackling their sugar reduction. Um, they, they recently reduced the sugar across all of its core biscuit lines by 10%, and they did that by running some trials with their fans to make sure the taste wasn't compromised, and then they rolled it out, and then they didn't really make a big deal out of 
out of the sugar reduction on the packaging. So it just kind of became the norm in its products. Um, so I think that could be a, a good way of going about reducing sugar in kind of established cult products where, where people have their favourites. Um, I also think, um, so, so, so actually I think the important thing there is they've kind of made a small incremental change to the formulation um, kind of helping consumers kind of shift their taste preferences about kind of making a sharp change that might alienate people. Um, I also think I also think the brands could um, kind of pair their sugar their sugar reduction efforts with kind of highlighting other perceived health benefits of these changes because there's a um, a new line by Nestle it's it's more range um, that could appeal to kind of these more health minded consumers. Um, it's, I think it's created a raspberry hazelnut Kit Kat Chunky and then a oats, apple and cinnamon Yorkie bar. And they both contain 30% less sugar, but that isn't kind of the main, um, thing that they've kind of pointed at. They've said that these, these products have more protein in them. The Yorkie bars have, have, um, kind of a source of fiber, uh, good for gut health. And we know that's a massive area of interest for consumers. Um, so there's just a couple of good, uh, good examples. Um, I also think something that could be of interest for consumers is looking at how you can reduce sugar in a sustainable way, looking at kind of waste reduction as well. I think um, there's a Dutch startup called Food, uh, Foodative, and what they do is they take apples and pears that are deemed like too imperfect to be sold in supermarkets, um, and then they um, extract the natural fructose from that and, and kind of um, via fermentation using yeast um and then this can be used as a sweetener and um it's free from allergens it doesn't spike blood glucose so it's good for people with diabetes and i think if brands can take sweeteners like this and then um kind of highlight this on their branding and in their marketing this could appeal to consumers who care about health and the environment so i think that's quite a, a bit of an interesting approach and similarly nestle in their Kit Kat bar where they've used um, the white um cacao pulp as a natural sweetener and that kind of ticks both the sugar reduction and food food waste boxes. I think, you know, that could be. Those are great. Those are really good examples. How are they? How are these products selling though? Because, uh, for example, you mentioned Nestle. Uh, um, so I covered a story about their Wowsome product, which they sold mm -hmm. early this year. Mm -hmm. I think. I think that. For me, I think that had partly to do with how it was marketed. I don't think, uh, I think they kind of failed to convey the benefits to the consumer. I think it's, it was quite a, it was a really interesting way that they, they went about it. But I think it, it was quite a complicated concept to explain to people. And I think in the end, when people, uh, when consumers saw it on the shelf, they just kind of assumed it was a less tasty version of a milky bar. I think, I think that was mainly what their issue was. Um it can be quite, I think it can be quite difficult to explain these concepts to people because especially if it's like a very technical, kind of very technical process. So it needs to be like clear and understandable to people. And I just don't think that was necessarily conveyed in that, in that example. Because we, because we wrote about that and um, those products a couple of years ago and we all were like, oh, you know, bravo, bravo Nestle. That's, that's awesome. But like, you know, it was, it was a shame. It was a shame and it turned out to be a bit of a failure for them. You seem to be telling the food industry that they they need to kind of have faith in these products there is demand for consumers if if they're given these products yeah i mean i mean if you look at just, just by the fact that consumers do actually want to reduce their sugar con uh, their sugar um consumption and there is that kind of intent there 
I think it's just finding finding kind of the angle in in which brands can kind of tap into that without without massively changing the flavor especially especially if they're reformulating products that are already popular mm. um so i think yeah it's it's tricky because consumers do have kind of conflicting views on it um and are, yeah, are, that makes are, sense yeah no it makes perfect sense and are consumers prepared to pay well two questions are they prepared to pay a premium for these products and two do they need to pay a premium for these products um, I mean, I think it depends how much of a premium, premium you're asking them to pay. Um, I think really if, if brands, if brands can kind of implement these changes without adding to the price of the products, I think obviously the pickup is going to be better. Um, but if somebody, if you have, if you have a consumer who's enthusiastic enough about a product and the product still tastes really good, I think maybe maybe they will be willing to, to pay a bit more. I realise I've just contradicted myself entirely, um, but like I guess it's a case of should should brands put put a premium on it, and will consumers accept that? Um, I don't know. Um, do you have any? That's fine. Nice. Do you have any examples? That you, you gave you gave me some examples of brands that you think are getting it right. Do you have Do you have any examples of brands that are getting it wrong? Um, I mean, I know this is probably a bit of an old um, example, but I know that um, Iron Brew tried to uh, massively reduce the sugar in their products. I, th I think, actually, for them, they changed they changed the formulation and it changed the flavour. And because it was such a cult product, that people were outraged. <laughs> so I think um, that that is a good way to kind of highlight how important it is to get that flavor pro that flavor profile right but at the same time they still McVitie's have still kind of consulted their kind of core fan base mm. and, and been like what do you think of this whereas I think Iron Brew was it, it was a bit of an e-jerk reaction they're like oh we need to reduce the sugar in our products and they just did it and they didn't really kind of think about kind of how that was going to play out with with people that were like you know who were obviously going to criticise it if it was going to change. So mm. I think um, that was a good way of going about it. I ask her where consumers stand on intervention into sugar levels and products. Do they want a nanny state approach or unrivaled choice, no matter the health consequences? Uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a tricky balance because you you want you want to be you want to stay as informed as possible about the kind of health implications of what you're eating. But I don't necessarily, for example, think that taxes, putting taxes on sugar um, has that much effect on consumer behaviour. I think they, they already know, that they, they've been told for, for several years now that sugar is bad, sugar is bad. Um, I think they're going to tend to gravitate towards lower, lower sugar products if that's what, if, if that's what they want, if they, if they feel that it's kind of detrimental to their health. I, I don't think it's necessarily that helpful to have it rammed down, rammed down their throats all the time, necessarily. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a it's a tricky balance. Leading on from that, where do we stand during the coronavirus era? Will will consumers mm -hmm. seek comfort foods during the crisis, like 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 I certainly am, or does the link between 
nutrition and immunity suggests that they at least should consider cutting sugar from their diets. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we were saying about having having the government kind of telling people how they should eat. I think I think it's important like the the government and then um, like backed up by food specialists at City University of London. They've been obviously trying to push the narrative that, you know, healthy, healthy eating is really important during this time. But actually, I think the reaction from consumers has kind of been divided down the middle. I think on one hand, kind of the sales of, of products that are high in sugar and kind of those comforting, comforting foods have seen like a massive, massive rise in sales. So Monolies, for example, have seen a huge demand in their, their kind of in Oreos over the past few weeks. And um, many consumers are turning to baking for comfort in the UK. I think um, trading sugar, uh, icing mixes and ready to, mi- uh, ready to make cake mixes kind of soared more than 40 percent. On, la- on this time last year and other sugar sales were up by 16%. So obviously this kind of comforting, um, familiar, kind of sitting at home under your blanket watching Netflix, chomping on, you know, uh, sugary and salty snacks. I think obviously that's going to that's gonna be a, um, a way a lot of people are going to go, certainly me. <laughs> I, can't say that, I can't say that I've been particularly kind of upping my vegetable intake in this in this time but um however I think in the long run um this urge for these kinds of comforting snacks although they'll, they'll kind of remain popular I think uh will give way to a healthier approach healthier approach by consumers who will keep, be keen to be in the best shape should this kind of thing happen again in the future and I think this will be particularly pertinent for older consumers who, um, you know, they're the, the ones that have kind of suffered the most from this pandemic. And um, I think we, because we, we've already seen a rise in interest in, in ingredients that boost immunity and, and also provide a sense of calm, like rosemary and chamomile have seen kind of, you know, a rise in popularity, people searching it online. Um, and I think this, this kind of interest will, will grow in the coming months. But at the moment, I think people are keener to hide, hide in their houses and, you know, indulge. <laughs> we conclude by suggesting that the brands that get it right in terms of reformulation understand their consumers. This ability to respond to ever-shifting consumer tastes is the key to making reformulated products successful and have, as Professor Jack Winkler said, mass appeal. Uh, there's, there's a time and a place for full fat, full product, uh, full, full sugar, ice creams, cakes, those kinds of things. I don't think those things are ever going to necessarily disappear. I think um, when consumers see those as, you know, an ever, kind of an occasional treat, that that's absolutely fine, I think. Um, and I think I think consumers know that. That's why I think things like the McVitie's example is really good because these, these are the kinds of treats that people are going to have every single day, or a lot of people will. Um, so I think if you can kind of reduce reduce kind of the amount of sugar and salt and these things um, that people are going to have in abundance, um, I think I think that's important. But along the same line, you know, people, like I said, people are always going to people people are always going to want to have those kind of bad quote unquote um, treats once in a while. Uh, so I think there's, there's, there's place in the market for all of these things. Um, it's just, you know, how you market them. You've been listening to the Food Navigator podcast. 
Join us next time for part two of our reformulation discussion. 